Tonight's New Testament reading comes from two, uh, two books, 1 Romans 4, verses 13 through 17. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is a father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. And then 2 Peter 1, 3 through 7. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and good godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me as we pray? Father, one of your promises says that your word won't return void. It will accomplish the purpose for which it was sent out. And then you also say, if Jesus Christ is lifted up, that you will draw all manner of people to him. And so, Lord, we believe both those promises and pray that you would make it so. In Christ's name, amen. I was wrestling with different titles for this sermon. Um, One was how to use God's promises. Another was how to make your case to God. Another one was praying the promises of God. I ended up with proving God's promises. Here's the basic point. I long for us to see that when we make our appeal to God... We must do it based upon his character and his promises instead of our own. Instead of our own. And that is vastly different than the way the world operates. And I would say many Christians operate within uh, the community of faith. And I'd ask you to examine yourself when it comes to that as we work through this. I was thinking about an old movie Paul Newman was in called Cool Hand Luke. Anybody? I'm just going to take a poll here. All right. Wow. I'm surprised. Cool Hand Luke. He's a convict. Hard times. It's really, the the movie has lots of uh, depth on different levels. But at one point, he goes inside this church. And it's, no one's in there. Old church. And this is his prayer. Hey, old man, you home tonight? 
Can you spare a minute? I know I don't have no call to ask for much, but you got to admit you hadn't dealt me no cards in a long time. It's beginning to look like you got things fixed, so I can't ever win out. All those rules and regulations out there, you made me like I am. Now, just in that short bit, you basically heard a model for prayer that I think it's very easy to fall into, and it's probably the most common model for prayer. And it goes like this God, are you there? Listen, I know I ain't perfect, I'm not that great, but you're supposed to be good. And maybe it doesn't sound that way out of your lips. Maybe it's, you know, your hope that as you go to God, he'll remember that you tutor a child. Or as you go to God, you'll hope that he's taking care of your aging parents or that you're taking care of your aging parents, right? These things that we rely upon, hoping that maybe he'll hear that request, hear what we bring to him. And uh, there's some folly in that right off the bat. First of all, it falls prey to the false logic that good deeds erase bad deeds, which just isn't true. But the second thing is this, that our good deeds are not as pure as we think they are, right? I mean, let's face it. I'm in ministry, okay, if you haven't noticed. I'm in ministry, and I do lots of things, and I would love to tell you my motives For instance, like trying to preach a good sermon are always pure, but they're not. And so as you and I stand before God and hope that that could be a ground of appeal, our character and performance, we're off on the wrong foot. How do we switch that? Now, it does raise the question, are you saying that good deeds are irrelevant? Because aren't there these verses in the Bible that say stuff like this? The righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. Or hear my righteous plea. How do we reconcile those things together? Well, let me, let me try to by way of imperfect illustration. Sometimes when you're walking around the city here, you, you see lots of development renovation projects. And you might see a, uh, just a shell of a home. Basically what's left is now the foundation and the facade because everything else has been gutted and torn down. And the reason the foundation is still there is because it's been judged to be good. It's been judged to be solid, or they wouldn't try to build back up on it. How do we understand God's righteousness, capital R, and our righteousness, small r? God's righteousness is the foundation. This is a righteousness the Christian gospel says comes through Jesus Christ, his one and only Son. That God, through Christ, credits your life with righteousness that you didn't deserve. This is our foundation. Our moral righteousness is more like the HVAC system. You know, it's more like the the air conditioning and the heat. Now, those aren't unimportant, right? You don't have uh, heat and air conditioning. You could be really uncomfortable, but you could still live in the house. You see, our moral righteousness kind of goes off and on, right? It breaks down, but we can always repent onto God's foundational righteousness. And that's why we can have hope appealing to him. It's not irrelevant, but it's secondary, where God's righteousness is primary. If we try to make our moral righteousness the thing, we will fall through the floor. And so, let's now move this in to the passages at hand. How is it, as we study God's character and promises, that our faith can be grounded properly? 
And I want to say in two different ways. First of all, it grants us the confidence of faith and the clarity of faith. Okay, those two things. The confidence of faith and the clarity of faith. First of all, the confidence. In our first reading, Romans 4, we heard this. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Later, that term righteousness of faith is called grace. So it rests on grace. And so what he's saying is, the promise that was given way back to Abraham, Hebrew scriptures, way, way back, that promise for him and everybody that believes like Abraham always rested upon God's grace and never on moral righteousness. The promise rested on grace, a righteousness that was not my own. It did not rest on Abraham's moral righteousness. Meg and I have been uh, watching, um, she heard on Fresh Air, um, this show Fauda. I think I'm pronouncing it right. Uh, It's on Netflix. And um, it depicts two sides of the story between the Israeli and Palestinian conflict. And in it, there's something uh, that's been interesting as we've been through a season. Uh, Within the Palestinian community, one of the ways that they try to motivate their soldiers and terrorists is to say, you will be a great hero in Allah's eyes. What you do, your heroism, will give you that favor. On the other hand, the Israeli uh, folks that are working for the defense, uh, it's basically secular. But you see the same sort of faith on their team. The way they motivate one another is to say, come on, go out there, right? And let's do it. Let's be heroes. And this is really just an illustration of the way faith, whether you're a secular person or any sort of religion, or maybe you even import that into the Christian faith, it's this idea that my extraordinary performance is the basis by which I can make my appeal to God. Now, if anybody could have done that, it would have been Abraham. Because Abraham was a righteous guy, but it wasn't his ground. And when you make it your ground, it's like trying to make your case. It's like a 20-time repeat offender in a courtroom demanding that a judge pardon him and give him a huge, sweet settlement. That's what it's like when we try to do that based on our moral grounds. But astonishingly, that's exactly what God does in the gospel. But he doesn't do it based on us. In the courtroom comes Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and God declares the righteousness that you lacked, and he had, I give to you, and the death you should have died, he took, and so now I pardon you and give you a huge settlement. This is what the Christian gospel teaches Which then means we not only have permission to ask God for things, we have a right to ask God for things. A couple weeks ago, I said the Puritans had a wonderful way of saying this. They talked about suing God. I'm going to sue God. Here's how they understood it. Because of their attachment to Jesus Christ and who he was, God had obligated himself to them. God had obligated himself. And so therefore, they could, it gave them a case to plead in Jesus Christ's name. They had a right to ask. Maybe I could illustrate it this way. Um, in a military conflict, a war, humanitarian law holds doctors to a higher standard. 
Right? They're, they're not allowed to partake in acts of war. They are allowed to pick up a weapon to protect their um, patients. They have to speak out about atrocities. But lastly, they have to treat all casualties, medical needs, ignorant of the fact, ignoring the fact of their nationality, religion, or enemy status. Their oath causes them to treat enemies differently. This is what God does in the gospel. His oath to Christ causes him to treat those who were formerly enemies with mercy. He has to keep his word. For God not to keep his word is to deny his own character. And so the crazy thing about the gospel is that God is inviting you tonight to sue him. The most wealthy person, the one with all authority, with all power, with a big smile on his face, for those that are in Christ, for those that have embraced his son, the advocate, he is commanding you to sue him. Now, when's the last time you sued God? Makes us a little bit nervous, right? Maybe some of you are like, I'm going to back up from that pulpit a little bit because I think Glenn might get a little extra judgment from the rain. Um, But I've got biblical examples, okay? Um, Compare the way this prayer goes as to yours. Um, So the backdrop here, this is the Old Testament. God has just delivered uh, Israel from bondage for 400 years, right? There were slaves, harsh bondage. He liberates them from Egypt, brings them through the Red Sea. Uh, Moses goes to get God's word, Ten Commandments, but they just decide to have basically... Uh, pagan ritual, and they turn from God and just say, we're going to worship the gods of Egypt. And so, this is how the conversation goes. The Lord says, I have seen these people, and they are stiff-necked people. That means that they're proud and ungrateful. Now leave me alone, so that my anger may burn against them, and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation, Moses. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord. Okay? He sought the favor, the grace of the Lord. But I want you to hear how he works that grace out. He says, O Lord, why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Argument one, God's character. They belong to you. You brought them into yourself. How can you do this? Argument one. Second. Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that the Lord brought them out so that you would kill them in the mountains and wipe them off the face of the earth? Argument two, your character, God, your reputation, your integrity. And then the last argument. Turn from your fierce anger, relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, numerous as the stars and the, uh, I'm sorry, remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as, numerous as the stars in the sky. I will give your descendants all this land I promised to them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Argument three, promise. Do you see how it went? Character, character, promise. And then we're told... Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Moses was suing God according to his covenant, according to his promise. Now, let's take a practical example for ourselves that we all deal with, forgiveness. How do you come to God for forgiveness? Here's argument one, or a typical argument. Lord, 
Well, I know you're aware I blew it again. I blew it again. Uh, but, you know, the last couple of weeks, I haven't blown it. I've actually done pretty well the last couple of weeks. And, and, you know, I've really been praying about this, and I've memorized Scripture. I have the community praying for me. What's the argument based on? Our character and our performance. Here's a different way. It comes out of 1 John. And I'll just quote it as in a prayer. Lord, if I say I have no sin, I'm deceiving myself, and the truth is not in me. But if I confess my sin, you said you will be faithful and just to forgive my sins and cleanse me. That is an argument based on God's character and performance. Because now the basis, you've made, I'm saying to God, you've made my forgiveness a matter of righteousness for you. A matter of grace. That's a much different way to approach God. Now, what about faith? Just briefly, before we move to the second point. Uh, Where does faith play into this? Uh, Faith is necessary. But it's not a meritorious cause. Okay? The grace of God is the cause for why he holds his promises to you and I. But the faith is what theologians will call the instrumental means. It's the means by which we receive these things. And faith is necessary. God's covenant requires a response. I mean, when someone makes a promise to you, you've got to make a response. We just did a baptism. God made a promise to Mary, Rachel, and Eric. Their response was to bring their child before God. I put this, um, but let me say this. Our faith in God's forgiveness is not the same thing as God's forgiveness. Our faith in God's forgiveness is not the same thing in God's forgiveness. The same thing as his forgiveness. God's forgiveness is objective. Our faith in his forgiveness goes up and down. But look at this prayer, I think, that was included in the reflection. Um, Is it in there? Is there a quote in there? Okay, let me read this. While what we have is divinely given, that is the promise, we can enjoy it experientially only by faith. That faith is not mere assent, but an embracing faith by which we cleave to the promises. It is a faith that welcomes the promises, clasps them, embraces them, and kisses them. When our hearts have such a grip on the promises of God, then like Simeon, we indeed hold Christ in our arms. Faith has a lot to do with how you and I are going to experience that. But let's move to this last point, more briefly, the clarity of faith. Uh, When we talk about this idea of coming to God and appealing to him, how do we do it in a way where we're not being presumptuous, proud, arrogant, foolish? God gives us some clarity on this. When you survey the Bible, you will find that uh, God not only gives us the promises of God, God not only give us the ground for what we should ask, it's the rule for how we ought to ask it. The promises themselves teach us not only what we can ask, but how, the rule of how we should ask. And it, the promises basically break down into two categories. You've got absolute promises and conditional promises. So let's look at those. Absolute promises are those things that God will give us. He has said, I'm going to give to you no matter what. So let's take, for example, you're in suffering and God's promise to bring deliverance and healing. Now, how do we begin to work that out? 
Because there are some theological traditions that will say to have faith means that God really never wants anybody sick. And if you pray and have faith, you will be immediately healed. And I would say that isn't representative of what the Bible teaches. It's actually a distortion of what the Bible teaches. That one day in heaven, we won't need healing, but the promise of perfect healing, that's that day. But what do we do? How do we work it out? This idea that God has promised this. Well, first of all, we have to go back to the Bible. Where Jesus said, you're going to have trouble in this world. And even Jesus didn't heal everybody that was in his ministry. But take the Apostle Paul. In the book of Corinthians, Apostle Paul has a need for healing. He has a thorn in his flesh. Best guess is some physical malady that he's dealing with. He prays to God three times and God does not heal him. Instead, he says, my grace is sufficient for you. That's a promise. So what he's saying is, even if you're not going to get healed, I will give you greater grace by which to conquer what you're dealing with. That's a true promise. So you could say, God, I want you to heal me. Would you heal me? It would be wonderful if you would heal me. I believe you can heal me. But if you don't decide to heal me this moment, you promise me that you give me grace to get through this moment. You can hold God to that promise. Or temptation. The book of Corinthians says that God will not tempt us beyond what we can bear. Absolute promise. You and I are in this place of temptation. Maybe it's an habitual sin. It's a place of integrity, an addiction, something you struggle. That you can actually say to God, God, you have promised that you will not allow me to be tempted beyond what I can bear. I'm clinging to that promise. Now, you know, it's one thing if you, uh, you know... (laughs) It's interesting how temptation goes. He may give you uh, that promise way back here, but you've taken like 30 steps toward the sin. And then you're like, why didn't you show up? He showed up before. I'll give you an illustration of that in a moment. And then goodness. The promise that no good thing will he withhold from us. And this is, I think, where we get tripped up. And that is God calls us. He's not just a powerless business partner. God is God. And so he tests us on the issue of, will we allow him to answer that prayer how he wants and when he wants? And that's where we really struggle. And if you get into this thing where you claim a promise of God and you then add a little addendum to it, and by the way, it needs to happen when and how I'm praying, and if it doesn't happen, I'm doubting whether uh, my faith is real or you exist. The problem with that is we've made faith equal to God doing it like we say he ought to do it. And that's not faith. Faith is an ability. Here's a quote. Promises are not made and fulfilled at the same time, no more than sowing and reaping are on the same day. A great example of this is Joseph. Right? Joseph, if you know that story in the Old Testament, God promises early on, Joseph, you're going to be exalted, and actually your brothers are going to kneel down before you. You're going to be the top in the family. Okay? Imagine if Joseph goes outside and goes, bring it on, promise. What does he find? His brothers abuse him, beat him up. He's sold into human trafficking and unjustly imprisoned throughout most of his 20s. How how do you reconcile that? Well, a lot of people, I think, wouldn't. They'd say, I'm done with this. I'm trying a different religion. By God's grace, Joseph hangs in there. And what happens at the end? That promise comes true, but he also sees that there were a lot of other things God was doing. 
He said it wasn't just for you, it was for the salvation of many. It was actually so the people of God, the promise of Abraham would continue, that they wouldn't be made extinct from famine. Clarity of God's faith and wisdom. That's what we need. So let me give you two personal examples, hit one other point, and wrap it up. Two personal examples. Uh, Last year, uh, I have forever have battled with, maybe you guys can relate to this, but battled with just, you know, not eating well, not sleeping when I go to bed when I should go to bed, um, you know, just being lazy. I don't want to get out there and run around and sweat. You know, this is just a regular thing. This is part of my life, you know. And so uh, I found myself praying about it like I often did. And I was praying for months. I was like, Lord, you know, I don't want to do this. You know, I don't want to do it. But at least he let me pray. I could pray. And would you pray? And so um, what happens last year in the fall is my daughter actually, uh, in her own pursuit of vocation, became a personal trainer. And she... <laughs> She comes to me last fall, around this time, and says, Dad, you've got to let me train. And I said, no, it's not happening. not happening. But I kept praying the prayer. God, would you, would you help, you know, would you answer this prayer? You know I'm weak. You know, Dad, Dad, you've got, you got to let me train you. No, it's not happening. I'm not going to do it. That's just like too much. What you're doing is for, for people that young. You're going to kill me. I'm not going to do it. Right? And so I just continue to go on and on. Well, God smacks me upside the head, and one day I'm like, huh, I wonder if God is actually sending, you know, another one of my things was, God, you know I'd work out if I could afford a trainer. <laughs> I used to say that. So what does he do? He brings my daughter to my house as a trainer to train me. Maybe he was answering my prayer. Maybe. Are you open to God doing it a different way? Right? You open up the prayer. So um, another one I'll say just in terms of waiting involves Meg's health. And I've shared this. I do not doubt that God supernaturally healed my wife. I don't doubt. Yeah, praise God for that. I don't doubt that. I don't doubt that. There's no other explanation. I can give you the story the other time. I'm sort of a skeptic. I really believe in doctors. I have no other explanation than God moved in. Now, if I took a poll. Uh, how many of you have prayed for my wife over the many years? Lots of you. And guess what? Plenty of days where he didn't heal her. We kept praying. We kept praying. Why did he decide? I don't know. To yet? Why did? I don't know. When it happened? I don't know. But I'll tell you, he did a lot in our hearts over those years when we had to keep praying and walking by faith. Because in the end, you know, we're all going to get healed. But this character thing, the thing he's doing in our heart, now that's a tougher work. That's what he's after. I mean, you're going to get the big thing at the end, I promise you. You're going to get the Cadillac. You know, you're going to get the house you want. You're going to get the body you want. You're going to get it all. But who will you become? Which leads to this last point. Uh, Well, I didn't mention conditional promises. We'll do this quick. There are conditional promises. Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you desires of your heart. What's the condition? Delight yourself in the Lord, right? Or how about anxiety? Do not be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your quest be known and the peace of God will surpass. Where were the conditions there? Prayer, 
But the one we often oversee is Thanksgiving. You know, I've seen there's a qualitative difference when I not only give the request to God, but then I thank him and go, thank you that you're going to answer my prayer, then I feel at peace. But that last part about the bigger picture here, the second Peter passage I gave you, it talks about the final aim of the promises, and it's this. Listen closely. The final aim of God's promises is not to get something, but to become someone. It's not in obtaining the object. It's in character change. And this is why we see this in Peter. What does Peter say? God has given these, he, he has given these precious promises in order that you might become someone that's godly. That's what he says. And that's where, you know, these promises of God stop from being just this little thing where they move out. We heard a wonderful testimony from Jonathan about Christian legal aid. And I thought he did a wonderful job about saying, inwardly growing, the grace of God, but where is it leading? Where is the promise of God in your life leading and touching other people? Where is it moving you outwardly? Because God says, for those with the promise, they'll grow in brotherly love. They'll grow in uh, goodness. They'll grow in all these different things. And I love at the end of that passage, Peter says this. And if you're not growing, you've forgotten the promise of God's grace. You've forgotten you've been forgiven. So he takes us all the way back around. And so, I wonder if this week, we, you know, we might try an exercise. It might be here that you're looking into the Christian faith and you, you haven't prayed a whole lot. That's okay. You have less bad habits than most Christians, you know. Um, but for those of us who have been in it, I, I want to urge you as you pray this week to examine what platform you're using, your character and promises. But you would learn to appeal to God's character and his promises, allowing him still to be God, because that will actually purify your request but boldly claiming his promises, the absolute promises that he's given. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the things that you tell us and the ways that you uh, bring your word to mind. Lord, I plead for this community, this small flock, that you would help us this week, each and every one of us, to catch ourselves and we would appeal to your character, your grace, your track record and that we would know the promises well enough to claim them. We ask it in your name. Amen.